the Word today together. We thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the life that He provides and for these songs of the faith that we've been privileged to sing. And I pray now as we look to Your Word as our authority, the place from which we draw these truths, and as we rejoice together in the Spirit today and the life that You give us in Christ, I pray that we will prosper in this reading of the Word. Father, I pray that You will prepare those who know not Christ the Savior to see the truth of His resurrection power, of His saving grace. I pray that together we may make progress today through Your Spirit. May some come to saving faith in some way, whether this sermon is simply seed, whether it's watering, or if this is the day of salvation. We pray that You will work in each of us As we come to Your Word, we need the work of the Spirit to teach and to convict and to show us Your truth. Teach us, we pray, and move us. Convince us of sin and instruct us in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and if you would listen as I read this familiar psalm, A psalm of David, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy, God has said, shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's hard to imagine a poem in history that is as widely recognized as oft-quoted in more situations than Psalm 23. Imagine, a Hebrew shepherd boy grows into manhood, writes a poem that ministers profound comfort and strength to people every day across this entire planet for 3,000 years. Take the collective wisdom of the world's psychologists and philosophers through the centuries and ask yourself, how many of them do chaplains quote to provide comfort and strength to dying soldiers on the battlefield? Can you imagine it? Soldier, your wound is mortal. You will soon be leaving this world. But look at me. And let me give you this quote from Sigmund Freud. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Or let me encourage you with this statement that Plato made. Soldier, your wound is grave. Take my hand and say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
What poem has ministered such widespread comfort to grief-stricken families at funerals? To lonely, discouraged, troubled hearts? To the imprisoned, the disenfranchised, the infirm, the weary? What poem? In content, its appeal is universal and virtually unrivaled. In its literary beauty, its mesmerizing cadence sounds almost like a lullaby to our ears. And yet, and yet, our familiarity with this classic poetic gem is itself a stumbling block, is it not? I think on a couple of levels. First of all, our familiarity numbs our affections to the psalm's truth. I would imagine as we work through this sermon today and look at length at this psalm that there's going to be a mighty struggle by any number of us to simply pay attention. We know it so well. We're so familiar with it. We take it for granted. It's like those things in a room that you quit seeing, even though you know they're there and are thankful they are. Secondly, I think our familiarity makes it hard to overcome the misconceptions that we read into the psalm. They get kind of cemented in and solidified in our minds. And I suspect that a few of us may discover one or two ideas here that we're reading into the psalm inaccurately. Although it's very familiar, let's labor today on this familiar text to feed our souls on this psalm with fresh attention, chasing away the misconceptions and seeking to be genuinely affected by its wisdom and its truth that stands the test of time and of course is the Word of the Lord. Before we delve into this text, however, we must get one thing straight. As beautiful as this psalm is, as encouraging as it is, it only works in the real world. If you read Psalm 23 as a feel-good poem that looks on the happy side of life, you will miss its wonder and its power to transform. And maybe that's the one place for a few where the misconception needs to die right here. That this is just a positive thinking experience. Psalm 23 only works in a world filled with suffering and trouble. To paraphrase Kidner, the peace this psalm emphasizes is not escape. The contentment it encourages is not complacency. David is fully aware that we inhabit a world of deep darkness where trouble and heartache, grief and deprivation wield considerable power as our mortal enemies in this world. There is good reason why this psalm is quoted in the face of death. And it's not simply because of that line, the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. That's not the only reason. There's good reason it ministers comfort to those whose souls are shredded by worry or whose spirits are quenched by mind-numbing discouragement or searing disappointment. There's a reason. This is a real-world psalm. But while people the world over are falsely comforted by its raw beauty, that is, they simply repeat it because it's familiar, let's revel in the truth revealed here about our God. Psalm 23, its power 
lies in its vision of who God is and how He relates to us as pilgrims in this waking world. King David, as he comprises this poem, employs two metaphors to illustrate how God relates to His people. Now some will argue that there's just one metaphor here, but I think they have to go through such gymnastics with verses 5 and 6 as to make it almost silly. But I think there really are two metaphors, and the first is very familiar, the Lord is shepherd. I think on this one we would all understand and know intuitively that that's the idea behind the picture that comes right out of the gate in this psalm. The Lord as shepherd, verses 1 through 4. But I think then we come to verse 5 and we see the Lord as host. The curtain lifts on a new scene here. But let's consider that first. The Lord is shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord, the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is translated sometimes I am. The name by which God revealed Himself to Israel, especially as He prepared to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. I am is here. My name is Yahweh. Our Lord, that is our Master, think of it, He is Yahweh. He is the God who is there. The God who never abandons His people. The God who always acts in their behalf for their good. This is our God. Not because we've made Him into this image on our own and it's the way we want a God to be, but because this is how He has revealed Himself to His people. I am the God who is there. I am the Lord. This God, our Lord, is our shepherd. Obviously in a figurative sense, but in a very significant sense. In ancient Israel, shepherds lived with their sheep. They led them to food and they led them to water. They protected them against predators out in the field. They tended to the needs of their flock. They knew them by name. At night they would come into a pen with other shepherds' flocks and they'd all, the sheep would all mix together at night and in the morning the shepherd would stand at the gate and call out his sheep with his distinctive call and all of his sheep would come and none of the others. They knew their sheep. They walked with their sheep. They lived among their sheep. The good shepherd held the life of the flock in his hand and with devoted attention took full responsibility for their well-being. The Lord is my shepherd. Every good thing that a shepherd could mean, that is our God. Such a vision of God is stunningly distinct in David's day particularly. The pagans who surrounded Israel knew all about worshiping their gods, but they offered sacrifices to appease their gods. That is to mollify their anger, to do whatever it took to avert the anger of the gods. And in some occasions, if it was necessary, that might even mean the sacrifice of a child. Whatever it took, they feared their gods. But they were gods who were angry. Gods who might momentarily strike out against them arbitrarily. But David says, no, the Lord is my shepherd. The gods of the nations were tyrants, unpredictable, demanding, aloof. But my shepherd, my Lord, is the shepherd. He does not use me for his advantage. He does not vent his arbitrary anger against me. 
No, my God watches over me, pours out His life to care for my every need. I am a lamb resting in His strong arms. I am a sheep entrusting my life to one who genuinely cares for me. He watches over my soul. That's who He is. Is the Lord your shepherd? There is here a personal relationship that is essential. The Lord, says David, is my shepherd. I am among His sheep and He is my shepherd. Because this is the case, he goes on to say, I shall not want. That doesn't mean God will take away all desires. I'll never want anything again like in the sense that I'll never have a desire. It does not mean God will give me whatever I want either. How do we read that word want? It means this, when the Lord is your shepherd, you will lack no good thing ever. Because He is your shepherd, you will never lack anything that is good. God is the one and all-sufficient source of my soul's satisfaction. He is all I need. Whatever I may lack, whatever I may yet desire, ultimately is not essential if I have the Lord as my shepherd. I think of the implications of this. No matter the trial, no matter the difficulty of life, no matter where we are, if God is our shepherd, we will have no need. Remember the real world of the psalm. Lots of troubles and difficulties, but no need. He supplies that sufficiency, that satisfaction. I remember to this day exactly where I was driving on the road. It irks me to this day. I've quit listening to radio because my car radio doesn't work anymore and I saw no reason to fix it. But I was listening to the radio that day. I was right down here on Williams Drive. I know right where I was. I couldn't believe it. But there on the radio was a woman talking to a Christian talk show host. The host was a self-proclaimed marriage expert and the woman a wife in a very challenging marriage. And she called in with a degree of enthusiasm to say, I'm facing these difficulties with my husband. But God is supplying strength to me. He's helping me live with joy despite the trials that I'm facing. And my heart really swelled with thanksgiving. I mean, where are, all, where are the people that say these kinds of things in the midst of such difficulties that God was ministering His grace to her in this trial? And I, I, was, I was really thrilled to hear such a thing on Christian radio. I don't have real high expectations about what I'm going to hear there. This was thrilling to me. And then the Christian host got started. And little by little, he worked her through to realize her husband was failing to meet her needs. And if she didn't get him fixed, she was going to be a broken woman. And you could almost see 
if you can see something on radio, this woman's whole orientation radically shift right there in that moment from God is meeting every need to looking to man to meet some need as absolutely essential. She needed to go home and insist to her husband that he begin meeting her needs as if she knew, if she knew what was good for her, this is what she'd do. And off she went on her new mission. Having been subtly steered away from utter dependence upon God to some man meeting her needs. Now, please understand me. I can be very much misunderstood. I'm by no means saying that this woman was in a healthy marriage. I'm not saying that change was unnecessary. And I'm not by any means commending her husband, though I don't know the details. Not at all. That needs to change. That needs to be fixed. But whenever we begin to look at needs that only people can meet, we look at needs that only things can provide, we're on very thin ice. In fact, we have entered into the realm of idolatry. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I will lack nothing. I couldn't miss the contrast somewhere in that very range of time. Elizabeth Elliot said, I've had three husbands and if they were all alive at once, they'd not be able to meet all my needs. But the Lord does. Always. Always. If you genuinely know Him, then God, God alone, meets every need of your soul. You are complete in Him. It is our sin. It is our lack of faith. It is our spiritual weakness that fails to fully realize this. It's not anything lacking in God. We don't take God off the shelf as an idol to meet some of our needs and place people and things and ideas and goals on the shelf as other idols who will meet other needs and combine the things together. No, the Lord is my shepherd. I will have no need. I will, ha- I will never be lacking in what is necessary. He supplies that. Troubled marriage infertility, singleness, family breakdown and challenges, unemployment, loss of a loved one. We can say this if we know the Lord. These are real trials. They're difficult. But I will never lack any good thing because the Lord is my shepherd. That's real. That's not a game we play in our head. That's who He is. David now illustrates how thoroughly God meets our needs. In the next phrase, He makes me lie down in green pastures, verse 2. He makes me. The Hebrew idea is that He allows me to lie down. It's not that He takes me to green pastures and forces me on the ground. But it is that He allows me to lie down in green pastures. He enables me to rest in this way. Green pastures are those grassy meadows. 
And in Israel, they weren't always that easy to find. So a shepherd had to take the sheep out to find these grassy, grassy meadows. <clears throat> Verse 2, continuing, He leads me beside still waters. Now don't get the idea here of a stagnant pond. That doesn't sound particularly helpful, does it? But the Hebrew is restful waters. Not that the waters are at rest, but they're waters where you can rest. That is, the Israelite shepherd would usually water the flock at a well, sometimes at a natural fountain, but almost never at a stream. And that wasn't a very happy situation for sheep to drink from a stream. It was dangerous. They're not particularly agile animals or athletic, if we want to use that word. So they, but they would water them at a place of rest. That's the idea here. Restful waters, a restful place. And He then, verse 3, restores my soul. It is by knowing God that we recharge our spiritual batteries. I will not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And there's somebody that's got to be honest here and say, no, He doesn't. Not for me. Not through the trials I'm facing. My soul is as dry as a desert. My spiritual batteries are dead. That honesty in light of this text is essential. But don't write David off. What we can do in our misreading of this psalm sometimes is say, well, here's a guy who just really has a positive way of looking at life, but he doesn't know what my life's like. Don't write him off. Don't dismiss him. Remember, this is the word of a man who faced severe trials in his life. David is not fantasizing. He knew what it meant to be traumatized by life's trials. He was chased like a wild animal across Israel by King Saul and his murderous army. On another occasion, the army David led threatened to stone him to death when Ziklag was burned, all of their families taken, their town destroyed, and his soldiers that he'd been running around with were talking over the fire that night, let's kill him. This is David, whose son Absalom in his old age chased him out into the wilderness. He was running for his life. The supplies were lacking. He was wearied by this journey, running from none other than his own son. This man says, He restores my soul. In the midst of trial and difficulty beyond what we could really imagine, David found in the Lord a source of strength and satisfaction. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Could I back up? i got to just say one thing. On He restores my soul. You say, that's not me. If God has never been a refreshment for your soul in a time of trouble, the reason may be that he's not your Lord. You need to understand it's not because there's something lacking in him. 
it's because there's something lacking in your relationship with him. Now, don't think that, okay, he's my Lord, and all the problems are going to go away. That's not the person writing this psalm. That's not what anybody thinks. But if you've never sensed that he has supplied my need, he has met me with satisfying strength and comfort in times of trial, it's not because there's something lacking in him. He may not be your Lord. We'll come back to that. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This is not the path that enables one to attain a right standing before God. This is the life that God calls us to live by His grace and in His presence. The right way leads to spiritual prosperity, the wrong way to harm and to emptiness. I say this to our teens on Wednesday nights often, probably every year a few times, After a half century of living, never have I regretted honoring God's word or following his counsel. Never once. When God leads you in paths of righteousness, you are left with nothing but joy and thanksgiving, no matter the trials that may surround those circumstances. You will never regret following the path of the Lord, ever. Now, you may regret following the path of the Lord that is your own identification of that path. You thought by following God you're going to get something out of it that you didn't get. I don't mean that. I mean when we really, truly listen to the counsel of God, believe it and follow it, there will be no regret. There will be nothing but joy in your memory. In a half century of living, I have never committed a sin that proved ultimately profitable or makes me proud. I got one issue on that. I'm not sure what to do with, but I'm not sure if it's sin to run through red lights when you're getting your wife to the hospital so she doesn't have a baby in the car. I kind of felt a little proud about that, (laughs) but you know what I mean. Every regret that I have to this day is a word, an attitude, an act that violated God's will. Every one. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He points us in the way of goodness for His name's sake. How do you read that? The reputation of God as shepherd is at stake in the counsel and the direction that He gives us. His honor, His fame, His character are all on the line when it comes to how He leads us as His sheep. You've heard the commercial, you're in good hands with Allstate. What are they saying? The insurance company is on the line as they care for their clients. That's what we're going to do for you. We're going to take care of you. And our name is on the line with that idea. By His name, Yahweh binds Himself to love and protect and act with tenacious loyalty toward His people. This is a shepherd you want. This is a shepherd that will take away all your wants. This is a shepherd who with tenacious loyalty will love you and care for you and defend you. 
and believer, those who have come to a saving knowledge of this shepherd and Lord, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's his promise. He is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is ever on your side. He is ever for you because as you have repented of your sin and come to him for salvation, you become part of his flock and he will bring you home. For his namesake, he will bring you home. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, verse 4, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me there in that valley. The picture here is this shepherd, of course, leading the flock, probably in that setting through sharp ravines and dry creek beds that run between the hills and the rock croppings in Palestine. Picture a hot day with the sun shining hard and then passing into this ravine where the sun is, is lacking and it's frightening in there because maybe in here there's a lion that's lurking or something. When we read death, and here's a place where we sometimes, I think, misread the psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're not talking there about clinical death. That this only applies when I'm facing physical death in the eye. The Hebrew word speaks of deep gloom, of foreboding distress, the domain of darkness. So it applies to death, but I think it applies much more widely. When I'm going through the deep gloom, there, your rod and your staff will comfort me. Even here, we need fear no evil. The word evil meaning calamity, disaster. It can mean moral evil as well. But I think the idea here is God will protect us. Why? You are with me. Now note the subtle shift here from the third person, he, in verses 1 through 3, to the second person, you, which will run now through verse 5. It's like David is speaking to us about the Lord and what he will do, and he can't help himself to now just begin speaking to God. You will not abandon me in the valley of the shadow of death. You will be with me there in the doom, in the gloom, in the heartache, in the foreboding, in the moment of trial, you will be with me. This is not a shepherd that runs away from the trials. Your rod, that's a club that would ward off wild predators. Your staff, the shepherd would use it to steer the sheep and at times even to pull them out of a crevice or something to grab around with the hook and pull the sheep out. The Lord will lead you through the darkest valleys. He will and notice this, it's the, the shepherds leading the sheep into that valley. And when he does, he will be there. Every false shepherd will come to the dark valley of foreboding, the place of difficulty and danger, and will turn around and leave. Whatever idol you pursue, whatever shepherd you seek to meet the needs of your life in addition to the Lord, that idol, that false shepherd will leave you at the worst possible time. The Lord never will. 
He takes you into that valley. He is with you through that valley. And He gets you out on the other side because His name is at stake. He's the good shepherd. At verse 5, then, I think the curtain falls on this metaphor of the Lord as our shepherd. And the curtain lifts on a second scene in which we see God as the host of a lavish banquet. Even though, I'm sorry, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The picture is not the kind of banquet that people serve because they want to get people together who really don't want to be together. It's not the kind of banquet that gets people together because they want to sell you something and they figure if you're eating, maybe you'll be likely to come. You know those banquets? Wow, are they long, aren't they? Why do we have to eat? Couldn't we just say the peace and get out of here? They're trying to create something that isn't real. That's not the picture here. I I get the willies when I hear the word banquet. It's like, okay, what's going on? This isn't that kind of banquet. This is a kind of feast you never want to leave. It's a kind of feast where the food is exquisitely prepared It's the best food you've ever tasted. The ambiance is perfect in the host. Oh, the host. You don't ever want to leave. This is that spot. Have you ever been there? I've been there a few times in my life. You're eating with people and you're eating food and the setting is such that the worries are gone and it is a place of delight. That's this banquet. In His presence, we eat, we feed, we commune, we delight. He's prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Probably in that setting, the idea of defeated enemies. This is a meeting of rejoicing and of victory. You anoint my head with oil. That doesn't sound very good to us and for good reason, but you got to put yourself back there. The oil was olive oil mixed with perfume. And the guest wouldn't get in a car and travel to the place of banquet. The guest would be probably walking or maybe riding a donkey, but it was dusty, dry, dirty travel. And so as you came to this great banquet place, maybe it was the tent of a king, it would anoint your head with oil. That helped with cracked and dry skin. It also had a hygienic purpose. As you've been traveling in the hot Palestinian sun, to have this ointment on your head made everybody a bit happier. But it was, it was a welcome sign of care for this guest. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows, probably a synecdoche that is apart for the whole. The cup is overflowing. The plates are overflowing. The table is overflowing with rich, lavish provision. This is how David sees his Lord. And this is a man who's out in the wilderness at times starving, who is so thirsty he wants to die, who has people chasing him to kill him, and he says, in your presence, there's a lavish banquet. And then at verse 6, the psalmist reverts back to the third person as he closes the psalm much as it started. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely, that is definitely, without a question, 
goodness, God's goodness, the source of all goodness, and mercy, His has said, the Hebrew word meaning covenant loyalty, will follow me all the days of my life. Mortal enemies often pursued David. As a shepherd, what was the mortal enemy? The lion and the bear. As a king, it was Saul, the Philistines, it was Absalom. But even more so, he says, God's covenant loyal love and pure goodness will hunt me down all my life. I won't be able to get away. Praise God. We cannot get away from God's goodness and steadfast love. You can't escape it. If you're in His flock, this is who He is. So the banquet God lavishes upon us in relating to Him will one day give way to the greater reality of eternal life in His presence. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the riches God pours out upon us in knowing Him in this life will pale in comparison to knowing Him in the next. If you're not living with your hope set on dwelling eternally with God, you need to get a life. Because all you're living for is what's dying. All you're living for is what's passing away. There is a presence with the Lord forever that should attract our attention in this life. And then in dying to pass into His presence. Is this how you actually see God? Let's get out of theory here and say, for you, is this who He is? Could you write this about the Lord? Could you say, that's my testimony? Is this how you personally know God? Do you know Him to be a God of steadfast, loyal love to you? I don't mean in a sentimental way that you get all tingly feeling about God once in a while or you read this psalm and it really seems to say something. You're not sure what. I don't mean in that sense. I'm talking about life amidst the trials, the tribulations, and the heartaches of a fallen world. Do you see God as your source of strength and joy? Does He refresh your soul? If God is no good for you in the gloomy, foreboding valleys of life, if He does not restore your soul in the midst of such troubles, I really wonder if you know Him. Because that's who He is. The good shepherd is one that we must meet. The truth is that God came to be known by His people. Not like the pagan God standing there arbitrarily angry, wanting everyone to do what He's asking them to do. He's come to be known by us. He wants to enter relationship with us that is rich and full and real. The answer, if you say, I don't think I know Him as my shepherd, is to meet the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He used this phrase, the Lord Yahweh of Himself. Before Abraham was, I am, I was Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I will ever be Yahweh. 
And as the good shepherd, he said, I give my life for the sheep. How is it that Jesus as the good shepherd ultimately cares for us? It is through laying down his life to die and to take the penalty of our sin. Dying in our place to rescue us from the penalty of that sin and rising from the dead to give us life in his name. Jesus' death conquered not just the shadow of death. He conquered death itself. And in His resurrection life, those who enter that life, there is transforming power in the Lord and in knowing Him. For those of us who can say, He is my shepherd, let me make just a few observations, just briefly. The first Very obviously, this psalm teaches us that if I know Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, I have all I need. He is the all-sufficient satisfaction of my soul no matter what I face. Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. I can know that, and that radically transforms the way that I deal with every trial of life. Secondly, this psalm reminds us that life is a pilgrimage. We should expect trials. We're going to walk through the foreboding valleys. We need to trust the Lord's provision in those places. We need to work in faith to put our confidence in God no matter what we face. We don't go at it with pride and say, bring whatever. I can handle it. No, but we know God can. And in active faith, we put our confidence in Him in whatever we face, whatever difficulty we experience in this world. It's a pilgrimage. We're not in heaven yet. So keep your focus on the Father's house. Remember that this journey will end there in fellowship in His house. And remember every day of your life and give thanks that Jesus was God-forsaken so that you would never be. I think practically too, in light of this psalm, made in God's image, we should respond to this psalm by seeking to be shepherd hosts to others. I'm talking about those who are in God's flock. You know that you've come to place your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sin, and it's not been just an intellectual thing. You say now, He is my shepherd. I've come to know Him. I've come to love Him. He is ministering His grace and His comfort in the trials of life. For that individual, we then should seek to imitate our God as shepherd hosts of others. For parents, such a clear implication steadfast loyalty to our children for their ultimate good to say, come what may, I will serve you, I will love you, I will shepherd you and host you for the rest of your life. For husbands and fathers particularly, the call to shepherd your families to give yourself away to them as the Good Shepherd does to us, to lead them through the valleys of darkness, to walk with them hand in hand, to love them, to protect them, to guide them, to nurture them. For the elders of our church, to point others in the paths of righteousness is our calling. 
Providing shade for them in a weary land. Providing rich fellowship with them. Do we provide that type of strength to those that are around us? How much we need to change. How much we need to grow to be a shepherd like Christ. To be a host like our God. And the whole congregation. Shepherds are to equip the saints for the works of service. It's not like they're to do something else. But all of us, rather, are to seek to shepherd others, to protect, to guide, to direct, to feed, to strengthen, to be loyal with one another in our walk through the difficulties of life. All of us as a congregation are to be hosts to one another. I don't mean necessarily in our home giving food, though that's important. But I mean to be that one who welcomes and encourages and pours out grace upon those who are around us. How much we need to change to be like our Lord. It requires sacrifice. It requires living for other people, not just living for self. It requires loving, active interest in other people. We've just scratched the surface. Psalm 23, so profound, very familiar, but by God's grace may it be a psalm we do not only recognize but a psalm that typifies the way that we live and a psalm that speaks in testimony of our confidence that the Lord is my shepherd. I will lack no good thing ever. Let's bow for prayer. Father, our shepherd and our Lord, we thank you. We stand in awe of this revelation. Rationally speaking, it would be possible for us to construct many other ways of thinking about you. But this is what you've revealed. And we are the beneficiaries. I plead, Father, with earnestness for anyone here who does not know the Lord as shepherd. And I pray that as they leave this place today that they'll talk to someone. That they'll find a way to get in the presence of an open Bible and to consider the truth of their sin and of Christ's redemptive work. And I pray that you'd make people your sheep today. But take the seeds of this message and may they bear rich fruit in the days ahead for those of us who know you father thank you we praise you that you are our sole shepherd and that we can say in this waking thirsty world i have taken a drink from the well of christ and i'll never thirst again i have eaten the bread of life and I will never again hunger. Rebuke us in our sin, in our attraction to idols, in our running to the supply of this world. 
And may we leave this place singing and rejoicing that you are our shepherd. We will never be in need. Through Jesus we pray.